Welcome to Jay Talking. This is edition 41 of the podcast. We thank you so much for joining us and for listening and for subscribing. Tweet the letter J-S-O-R-G-I. That's J-S-O-R-G-I. Let us know what you think of what you're hearing on this podcast. Today, we are going in the December football wayback machine. We're going to jump ahead a little bit on the calendar from today being December 4th. We're jumping to December 12th. And we're going to take it back to 1965, where we had two of the greatest running back performances in the history of the National Football League happening at the same time on two different fields, both by Hall of Fame running backs with very familiar names. And we're going to bring in to discuss this Wisconsin sports historian and author Tom Andrews. Tom, thank you so much for chiming in and joining us. Hey, Joey. My pleasure. Thanks for for asking me to to sit in. Now, as we go back to this day, let's set a little bit of of the scene when it comes to what was happening in the league at the time. Uh, Going into that day, the Green Bay Packers were a half game behind the Baltimore Colts, the defending Western Conference champions, and were going to play Baltimore in a contest that really was, in a lot of ways, critical for their hopes to win the Western Division, and the Chicago Bears were only a game and a half behind as they went into that day, and they knew that if they won, the worst that they were going to be behind in the division was a game behind with a game left to play. So as they were going to play the 49ers, the Packers were going to play the Colts at simultaneous times on the schedule. Now, Tom, as it happened, you were watching these games as a kid, I won't date you, but you were watching the, those contests. And I'll you, date me. <laughs> <laughs> you go ahead. I'm, I'm not going to do that to you. Jay, I was 12 years old, uh, and, f- and for your listeners, I began watching the Packers when I was seven. My first game that I can remember watching from start to finish was the 1960 championship game against the Eagles that they lost. So... I was very, very much into the Green Bay Packers by the time December 12, 1965, rolled around. This was a Sunday afternoon with a lot at stake. And as it happened, both games happened to be marred by weather. Yes, uh, in Baltimore... Uh, it was an extremely foggy day. You know, you, you, you know there, there are a number of games. I believe there's a, another one from the 60s that was also famous uh, for the Baltimore Fog when, when the, the Colts were playing the Washington Redskins. Uh, but this was a game, people may remember the game between the uh, Philadelphia Eagles and the Bears at Soldier Field. Uh, Reggie White was a participant in that ball game. It was, it was not quite as thick as that, but very close. Very close. And the reason I remember that is, you know, my father and I would always watch the games together. We'd get home from church, and, and uh, Mom would be making dinner. And we were sitting in the living room, and we did not sit in our customary seats that, that day. We were both kind of like on the floor closer to the TV because the images, literally the players would come in and out, depending on what camera uh, angle CBS took. Uh, they would come in and out. But you, you saw enough of it to get the gist. One other thing to point out about this game was that Baltimore, the Packers ended up playing the Colts that year three times. The first time they played them in Milwaukee, 
Johnny Unitas was their quarterback. The Packers won that ball game on a last-minute touchdown from Zeke Bradkowski to Max McGee. This was a rematch. The quarterback for the Colts was Gary Quazzo. He was a very good and serviceable quarterback, but obviously he was not Johnny Unitas. Bart Starr was playing this ball game for the Packers, and he was healthy. So just on that edge, we kind of thought, well, the Packers have the better quarterback. They should win. But, and they did win, but it took some doing. It took a lot of doing, in particular with a running back, Tom, who had been benched in previous weeks, but Vince Lombardi gave Paul Horning the shot to redeem himself and say, okay, this is a big ball game. Can you pull out one more good performance? This was a lot better than good. Well, I'll tell you, Paul Horning was that kind of ball player. And I know I've heard arguments, you know, Paul, he really should not be in the Hall of Fame um, because his numbers overall were not all that great. Um, Well, there's one thing about Paul Horning that really doesn't show up in statistics is the heart and character that he brought to that team and the swagger he brought to the Green Bay Packers. When Horning was up and running, everybody felt, in sync, if you know what I mean. He was he was like a, an energizer for that ball club, and uh, he took it as a personal challenge when when Lombardi asked him if he if he would uh, if he would want to play, and uh, he came up. You're right. He came up with one of the great all time performances, not only in his career but of all time. This was a day where the Packers had to have that because they were going to get up against a Baltimore Colts team that had won the, the, the championship in the Western Conference previously, they still had so many of their cogs from their championship years in the late 50s, and it's so interesting to think about that from the time that the Packers made a championship game for the first time under Lombardi in 1960 until after his retirement, this Colts team that was laden with Hall of Famers never won a championship, and it's because they were in the same conference as the Packers, and this was one of the particular times the Packers got them. You know, the, the, the Colts and the Detroit Lions of that era kind of shared that uh, dismay because they had some, the Lions had some good teams too, particularly in 1962. They felt like they should have beaten the Packers. Um, they, they felt like they should have won the first time, and then, of course, they took their revenge out on Thanksgiving Day, which turned out to be the Packers' only loss. But, uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, the Baltimore Colts, they, they had, I mean, you talk about stars. I mean, they had Lenny Moore. They had Johnny Unitas. They had Raymond Berry. They had Jim Parker. I mean, these are, <laughs> these are legends. So two teams with a lot of Hall of Famers, a lot at stake, and a huge performance. Especially from Paul Horning. And let's look at what he did that day. If you first look at it with the first quarter, two-yard touchdown rush after an early Colts field goal. And then in the early part of this game, but the latter part of the first quarter, is the image that most people will see from NFL films from that day. Maybe it was the only image of a horning touchdown that they could get from field camera because of the fog. It was a patented Bart Starr play-action 50-yard bomb to Horning on a day where his pass receiving was more important than his running. Well, yeah, but, you know, the Horning, and the thing about it, he, Paul Horning did not have breakaway speed. If you know, Lombardi used to say that if Horning had breakaway speed, he might have been one of the all-time greatest of the greats 
okay? And he still was a great, great running back, but I'm talking about, you know, when you look at, you know, top 10, top 5 running backs, if Horning had breakaway speed, when you add that with all his versatility, people forget this is a guy who kicked, he, he you know, he, he was an gr- excellent blocker, he was an excellent receiver, um, he, he was just an all-around, he was, he was Mr. Versatility. He was the Packers' Swiss Army knife. So, uh, on that particular play you mentioned, you know, he didn't have a lot of breakaway speed, but the Packers had so so uh, totally sucked in the Colts with that play-action fake that he had a, a good 10 yards behind the linebackers, and uh, the last cornerback uh, uh, was on the other side of the field and just didn't have the right angle uh, to catch him. Late second quarter in that game, Baltimore was driving. They were down just 14-13. to 13. They were in the Green Bay Packers red zone. Dave Robinson makes a play that I think really began to cement his Hall of Fame resume. Well, at, at the time, of that, well, his interception and return were the, was the fourth, fourth, fourth longest in Packer history at that time, uh, 87 yards. You know, Quazzo, Quazzo, as I mentioned earlier, was a good, was a good quarterback. He had, a, he had a good arm and everything, and he led the Colts uh, on a good drive. I believe they were around the 20-yard line, 25-yard line, and John Mackey, a beast of a tight end, number 88, uh, was over the middle, and Quazzo saw him, and he didn't see Dave Robinson tagging along. And I don't know if the fog had anything to do with that, but he didn't see Dave Robinson. He threw this pass, and Robinson just made a leaping grab right in front of John Mackey and then proceeds to go down the sidelines along the Packer bench. Uh, years later, I talked to Dave, and he, like, he still rues, and he says, that should have been a touchdown. It should have been a touchdown. If Ray Nitschke wasn't in my way trying to block for me, <laughs> I would have made it. He said, but Nitschke got in his way. He got, Nitschke made his block, but they all tumbled together. Uh, uh, I believe around the 15-yard line or so of Baltimore. So Boyd Dowler then goes and takes care of the rest of the yes. of the yardage to give the Packers a bit of a pad. Horning scores a couple of touchdown runs in the third quarter to pad the Packers' lead even more to a three-score advantage. Baltimore comes back, fourth quarter, even without Johnny Unitas. This Hall of Fame-laden team kept pushing and put the Packers again on the brink they had a tenuous eight-point lead. Granted, there were no two-point conversions at the time. Guess who the Packers go to to put it away? For a 65-yard pass. Now, anybody who remembers watching Bart Starr knows that was not 65 yards in the air. I believe it was closer to 25 or 30. But Starr was, above all things, accurate and above all finding his open man at the right time. And again, Paul Horning defeated the linebackers, and the uh, defensive backs of Baltimore had no answer. And that there was a there's a very famous picture of uh, Horning scoring. It was shot from the opposite end zone. He's running toward the big scoreboard, uh, and that is the final touchdown. That is the final touchdown because if you look at the scoreboard, the score shows 35-27. Baltimore. And there's also a picture I went back in, in my archives in the 1966 yearbook when Horning got into the end zone. Fuzzy Thurston gave him the biggest bear hug maybe <laughs> in Packer history. So uh, uh, there's two, at least two great pictures uh, from that game that I'm aware of. 
What was the picture of little Tommy Andrews like when you were looking through the, whatever you could possibly see of the fog on that CBS broadcast on what was not HDTV at the time? Little Tommy Andrews had short blonde hair. Not not a crew cut or anything like that, but short blonde hair, and I had glasses. That particular year is the first year I had glasses, and I look at them now, and I think Buddy Holly glasses. I mean, they're dark glasses, and, and I, I looked a lot like the kid from Christmas Story, now that I think about it, uh, but no pink bunny suit. Thank you very much. <laughs> Tom Andrews, Wisconsin sports historian and author. We're talking about December 12, 1965, a couple of legendary National Football League games going on that day with a couple of legendary performances. The Packers beating the Colts. Paul Horning, five touchdowns. And at the very same time, in muddy Chicago, another halfback was topping what Paul Horning was doing. You think a five-touchdown day, that's not going to be topped at least that season, if not for a few seasons. Gale Sayers was doing something even more impressive. Well, Gale Sayers compiled not one, two, three, four, five, but six touchdowns. And you know, when you look back, I did not see that game live. I remember seeing the the highlights after the after the Packer game was over and the Bears game was over and seeing the highlights and of course in many years since you've seen the the film recaps, but it it just seemed, you know, Wrigley Field, which is where they played long before they played at Soldier Field, uh Wrigley Field was a quagmire. I mean, they had rain that day, uh, a couple hours before the ball game, as I recall. The field was just a mess. And, you know, it's funny. You look at these games. This is, to me, this is why when you look back at the old NFL films, this is the charm of watching some of the football games from that era. You had natural turf. You had open-air stadiums, no domes, no, no artificial turf. So you had the muddy games when it was really rainy. And this was a big big mud quagmire and i believe uh, the first touchdown uh, the bears were on their 20 and uh, rudy bukic was their quarterback he threw a screen pass to sears and he just made one guy miss and then it just seemed like you watch him float across the field and it's like he everybody else is stuck literally in the mud they can't move and gale was as i mean what a graceful running back he was and once he once he got to about midfield there was no no catching him so many visuals that stand out from that game the that pass reception you mentioned a couple of long runs he had a couple of dives that looked like he was floating on air just on one or two yard touchdown runs where he did his impression of what Walter Payton was going to be doing time after time for years after that in Chicago. And then came the punt return. And that's the one that is, to me, the biggest puzzler. The guy has scored five touchdowns on you today. Why do you punt to him? (laughs) And they're up 54-20 at the moment. So why even put him in? Yes. And it was amazing. They kicked right to him. Exactly. And he just, he just, he had full command and full footing. And once again, it was the Keystone Cops trying to catch him. Um, just, he was just an amazing, amazing athlete. Far too short of a career. Now, let's go to, again, your experience and the experience of what the fans had at the time as they were paying attention. There was no social media. There was no. no Twitter. There were no 
uh, cell phones, smartphones with app pushes that can give you an alert saying, hey, check out what Paul Horning and what Gail Sayers are doing. There was no NFL red zone for you to be able to flip between games, and they didn't switch over networks sometimes so that both Fox, which didn't exist at the time, and CBS could each show NFC games going on. You had the game that you had in front of you, and if they were going to report something else going on across the league, you were dependent upon Ray Scott telling you that that was happening while the Packers and Colts were playing. Well, that's, a, that's exactly right. And even after the game, I mean, if you didn't catch the short uh, NFL Today postgame show, uh, where they would show a few short highlights, a few short taped highlights. Really, I don't remember seeing the uh, a more comprehensive breakdown of the of the Bear Forty Nine er game until the following weekend. The, the NFL NFL Films had a show in those days called This Week in the NFL, in which they would show extended highlights of every game for both the Eastern Conference and the Western Conference, generally speaking. Sometimes they would skip a game if it was a real stinker, but they gave more time to the games that were you know, really meaningful or had a lot of great action. And they put together a beautiful highlight package of Gail Sayers' performance, and it was just job-dropping to see all these plays happen as when they edited them back-to-back. It was amazing. Now comes what to me is the crux question of the day when it comes to how these two performances played out. Because the games happen at the same times. The fourth quarters probably happened approximately the same time. Each game had a ridiculous amount of points scored. You had, I believe if I do the math, 69 points scored between the Packers and the Colts. You had a total of 81 points scored between the Bears and 49ers, so there were a lot of breaks in the action, so they were both probably dragging long. Horning scores that 65-yard pass reception from Bart Starr in the fourth quarter to put that Packers-Colts game away. I would have loved to have seen in real time, okay, when did that Gale Sayers punt return happen? Did it happen after the Horning score? And somehow did George Hallis know about it and put Sayers back in the game? Well, you know, I have never, I've never heard uh, that as a as a story. You're, you're bringing it up as the first time I've even considered that. But on, but on the flip side of that, uh, from what I've read about George Hallis, I never met the man, but certainly his reputation was larger than life. That would not surprise me because of the rivalry. You know, people know the Packers Bears rivalry. Well, George Hallis is one of the guys who obviously stoked the fires, particularly in the very beginning, between him and Curly Lambeau. And they would do anything to outdo each other. So that would not surprise me if, if Sayers was surprised that he got put back into the ball game. Uh, but in the other thing, I don't know, I don't remember who the other uh, uh, punt returner might have been for Chicago had Gale stayed on the bench. So, it, it, But you saw him come into the ball game. And and I I, I saw the, the films, and I'm going, why are they kicking to this guy? He's been killing them all afternoon. My it's kind of like the New England Patriots deciding to kick deep to Desmond Howard in Super Bowl 31. <laughs> really? And that decision made by a, a future Hall of Fame kicker, by the way, in Adam Vinatieri. That's correct. How did... uh, Desmond, Howard, Desmond <laughs> Howard's reply is, you know, they got a little cocky. Yep. They decided they're going to kick it, and they're going to they're going to 
they probably wanted to wipe him out, <laughs> and, and and he and he stuffed it down their throat. That's probably why, among the reasons that the 49ers were not competitive in the 1960s at that point. Well, now, you know, and that's a shame. Yeah. The 49ers had a lot of talent. They really did. Uh, John Brody was an outstanding quarterback that never gets his due, in, in my humble opinion. Never gets it. They had a running back named John David Crow. They had a linebacker named Matt Hazeltine. Uh, they had some good guys, but for whatever reason, they could not put it together. Either their offense was particularly dominant, or even earlier when they had Y.E. Tittle as a quarterback and they had R.C. Owens as a wide receiver, uh, and in later years when Brody was the quarterback, they just they could not get either both sides of the ball working together at the same time. Couldn't do it. And yet they were able to tie the Packers the week after that and oh, force that one-game playoff, which the Packers won in overtime after a disputed field goal by Don Chandler with about a couple of minutes left in regulation. And that, that is a story that we could talk about for days. Well, uh, um, let me just go back real quickly to the day after the uh, the uh, now, game with Baltimore. I was going to ask you about that. Go ahead. Paul Horning, I had the opportunity uh, many times to interview Paul. And I think in at least two occasions, uh, I got him to talk a little bit about that game, his five-touchdown performance. And uh, the, the most lucid response I got was that he recalled, you know, the day after the day after. So I remember taking a shower and being really excited to get the morning paper because I wanted to read all about me. So I got the sports section, I opened it up, and the headline said, Sayers scores six touchdowns. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he was like, it just totally blown away. Exactly. So I, you know, it's, which begs the question, the players on their way back didn't know what Sayers did, obviously, because Horning had to wait till the next day and saw the headline. It tells you how much different today's era is of instant information versus yep. that time. But and now, I, go ahead. Go ahead. And it, but it still begs the question, which again we may not be able to answer. I'm trying to reach some of the 65 bears to find out. Did Hallis know? Because they did have wire reports at the time, so they could find that out theoretically. Mm-hmm. We'll have to see. But we would be Next. remiss, Tom Andrews, if we did not talk about an incredible book that you have put together of some of the greatest photos, not just in Green Bay Packers history, but National Football League history that has just been released. Tell us about it. Well, the book is called 100 Years in Titletown, and it is the combined works of the late, great Vernon Beaver and his younger son, Jim. Vernon, if you recall, for Packer fans who may not know, Vernon was the original team photographer for the Packers. And Vernon Beaver, um, briefly how he got this thing, he was a 19-year-old graduate from Port Washington High School. He came to Milwaukee, went to the Milwaukee Sentinel, and asked the sports editor if he could be a stringer. For those who don't know what a stringer is, he's a freelancer. Could I take some pictures for you and get paid occasionally? And the, and, and the sports editor said, yeah. As he was heading out the door, young Vernon thought, you know, I'm going to be going to college this year to St. Norbert's up in the pier. How about I take some pictures of the Packers for you? And the editor said, well, what's it going to cost? And Vernon said, you know, just give me a field pass. The pictures are free. 
He got his foot in the door. So here's Vernon, and the guy says, well, the Packers are playing the Bears on Sunday. Let's see what you can do. So here it is, September 28, 1941, and 19-year-old Vernon Beaver finds himself at Old City Stadium, standing on the sidelines with Curly Lambeau, Don Hudson, across the way, George Hallis and the Chicago Bears. That's his introduction. Well, Vernon Beaver uh, shot pictures as the Packers' official team photographer. Um, he got the official team photographer through the Packers uh, after, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, after that first season, he, the war broke out, and he was a photographer in the Army for two years before being discharged. And he was a very notable photographer there, which is another, another podcast. But he came back to the States, and he went back to the Sentinel, and they said, well, sorry, we've already replaced you. So now he's 21 years old, Vernon Beaver. He goes back to the Green Bay Packers and says, you folks don't have a photographer, do you? And they said, no. Would you like one? Well, we can't really afford to pay for one. He said, just give me a field pass and your pictures are free. Do you know that Vernon Beaver shot as team photographer all the way through he retired in 2008? Wow. Never was paid directly by the Green Bay Packers. Wow. His, his photography, he managed to find connections. They'd be playing the, the Giants. He'd made connections with the New York Times. They'd be playing the Bears. He'd make connections with the Chicago Tribune, and so on, and so on. He would sell his photos all around the league and then to magazines like Sport Magazine, Sports Illustrated, and, of course, all the annual football magazines, Packer Yearbook, things like that. So he did that, and, and in the 70s, his younger son, Jim, decided to, uh, he, he got out of high school, and he decided he'd like to follow a little bit in his dad's footsteps. And so he starts being on the sidelines with Vernon during the games. And um, he ends up, when Vernon retired, Jim took over as team photographer. But he shot all those years, too, uh, with his dad, the two of them. And uh, he retired after the 2015. So our book, 100 Years in Titletown, is eight decades of classic, classic photography from the Packers uh, by these two gentlemen, with one notable exception. We have a special section in the book, and I won't give it away, but it says, the greatest photo Vernon Beaver never took. <laughs> I think I know and, which story, uh, but we'll leave it for that. And a lot of people, a lot of people really have that story all wrong. So if you, when you get the book, you'll, you'll know exactly what I mean. But I'll tell you, uh, Jim Beaver got the idea to get put together a best of the best of his dad's and his work about two years ago. He started going through photos. And Vernon was a very meticulous archivist. So Jim, last year, called me, uh, to which I am very grateful and I was very honored. He asked me if I wanted to be the storyteller for the book, write the chapters, do his research on, on identifying players and, and games from the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. Um, so I had a blast with it. Uh, and I think, I think any Packer fan, young or old, you're going to find something. Because, again, it goes from Curly Lambeau through uh, Mike McCarthy. You speak of young fan. I got to tell you the story. We were last week in my wife's hometown of Charleston, West Virginia. My son and his grandmother were going book shopping at the mall. He knew nothing of this hundred years in Titletown book that you have put together 
with the Beavers. He knew nothing about it, so I have to admit I was a very bad PR agent for you within our household. (laughs) But he sees this book in a mall in Charleston, West Virginia, and he's like getting excited and pointing at it and is like pointing to, to his grandmother saying, that's the one I want for my birthday. That's the oh, one I want. I want to see this kid in person. I've seen him on Facebook. <laughs> i got to meet him and give him a high five. Good going, young man. We will set this up for you, and Daddy had no part in it. So, <laughs> so d- despite my lack of efforts, he is a big fan of yours, and I think he is not alone with what you've put together. That is a phenomenal, phenomenal book. Well, I, I appreciate that, and you know, uh, one of the one of the really neat parts about it too is that we were able to get Brett Favre to do the forward. Uh, you know, Brett very had very good relationship with both Vernon and Jim, and uh, you know, Jim called me up and he says, "Hey, who do you think we should get to to, to write the forward?" And honestly, my first thought was Bob Harlan. Because he's, you know how nice a man Bob Harlan is, how much of a total grasp of Packer history he has, how accessible he is. And I thought hey, Bob would be a perfect guy. And he says, well, you know, that's a great choice. He says, but I got a different guy in mind. And I said, who? And he said, Brett Favre. And I said, oh, you mean Elvis. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, Brett, Brett's uh, sphere has grown so much that he's really not anywhere near as accessible as he was when he was a player. And he, Jim's asked me if I had his contact information, and I said, honestly, I don't, Jim. And he said, well, I don't either, but I might know somebody who does. And I can't divulge who it was, but he called that gentleman, who's still in Green Bay, who called Brett for him and said, hey, Jim Beaver's doing a book. Would you like to be involved? Do you know that within five minutes, five, ten minutes tops, Jim's phone rang, and it was Brett. I believe it. Hey, Jim, I'll be happy to be part of your book. And uh, so we got him to we got him to do the forward. Actually, um, he said, have your writer call me next Wednesday. So I, being the writer, called Brett, and recorded our conversation, and transcribed it, and uh, put it down in the book. Outstanding, Tom Andrews. What a fantastic way to top off this book of some of the greatest photography you'll ever see of football, period, let alone the most storied franchise in the National Football League. The nice thing about it, too, uh, is, you know, there are many, many images that we've all seen for a long time. Please don't think this is a rehash, because there are more pictures that you have never seen, many, many behind-the-scenes Behind the scenes uh, photos. I'll give you one example. Were you up? Were you up in Green Bay when Brett was uh, uh, inducted into the Packer Hall of Fame? I was not there that day. I watched it uh, on television. Okay. Well, I was there. I happened to be on the sidelines opposite the Packer Tunnel when Brett was introduced and such. But Brett, as he was waiting in the tunnel to be introduced, Jim was right behind him because he was going to catch pictures, and Brett was decidedly nervous because of the fact that they're here, there's all these people, and, of course, all that mess with Minnesota and stuff, and he didn't know how he was going to be received. And he turns to Jim, and he says, what do you think Vern would think about all this? Wow. (laughs) How present of a human being Brett was in that moment, even with every emotion, and all that Jim was able to capture as well. Tom Andrews, this has been a fantastic conversation. 
Thank you so much. Where do you get the book? You can get the book just about anywhere. Uh, Barnes and Noble. You can get it online. Uh, uh, Walmart was Walmart dot com was carrying it. Uh, any fine bookseller. We last night we were at Boswell Books in Milwaukee. Uh, but you can go to any any. Uh, any store that's, that you know sell, sells a good quantity of books, and chances are you can find it. You can also get it through the publisher. They, the publisher is Triumph Books out of Chicago. You can look them up online, Triumph Books. But it's open. It, it's available just about anywhere. But I got to tell you, we're getting word now. Uh, this book came out October 1st, and we're getting word now that quantities are starting to dwindle, and that's not a bull. <laughs> that's moving. the truth. So if you want to get a copy of 100 Years in Titletown, oh, and here's another spot you can get it. The next two home game weekends, I am up in Green Bay at Lodge Kohler, right across the street from Lambeau to the west on Ridge Road. Uh, I am there on Saturday and Sunday. Uh, we have. I have a friend of mine that uh, sells Packer memorabilia, and we have Packer player guests. This uh, this weekend, we're going to have Craig Newsom. And do you remember Kevin Barry? Absolutely. You seventy one. Kevin Barry from Racine is going to be there. Uh, that will be exciting. And then for the Bear Week, so far we've got Chester Markle, uh, who will be there uh, probably both days, Saturday and Sunday of, of the Packers Bears game. So come on out to Lodge Kohler. If you'd like to sign, I'll be there, and I'll be happy to to sign your copy. And this is a great – I'll tell you, yeah, your, your son has the right idea. This is a good gift for Christmas. <laughs> Tom Andrews, author, Wisconsin sports historian, thank you so much for joining Jay Talking today. Hey, my pleasure, Jake. Always good to talk to you. That's Tom Andrews. Again, a, a fascinating conversation. We will be back next week on the Jay Talking Podcast. Tweet us at the letter J-S-O-R-G-I. That's J-S-O-R-G-I. Tell us what you're thinking. Feel free to share this podcast with your Packers-loving friends and all your sports-loving friends as we dive into the final month of this NFL season. Thanks for listening to Jay Talking. I'm Jay Sorgi. Have a great Wisconsin Sports Week.